Salve, listeners. In today's episode, I challenge Sam to an Olympic-themed musical steeplechase. Due to popular demand, I share my John Cooper Clark impression as we chat Mendelssohn's. And we hear how one puts together the Edinburgh International Festival. Woo! Sam, any idea what that song is? Uh, no, but I do know your mind, Tim, and I know the time of year that we're in. I think it's banal and joyful enough to possibly be an Olympic anthem. <laughs> yeah, that was colourful, the official song of the Tokyo Olympics, performed by a veritable smorgasbord of J-pop stars, including Little Glee Monster. Ah, yeah. Perfume, Ayumu Imazu, and Chikuzen Sato. Did you catch the opening ceremony on Friday? I didn't. Uh, I was a busy boy on Friday, but I hope it was better than... I think my least favourite opening ceremony ever was the South Africa World Cup one. Why? Um, Because it had Shakira as the main event, who is uh, famously Colombian. Colombian, yeah. And it just didn't really feel like a celebration of the host nation. So I'm hoping that when I get around to watching the Japan one, it will will be rich with their culture and nation. It will have got a good review from the telegraph (laughs) (laughs) what more do you need i I think if people in general feel that their traditions culture history values etc are under assault they are i don't want to be too alarmist about it but they are basically right and did you hear about the controversy that shrouded the run-up to the big day oh didn't someone say something awful about the holocaust like they often do yeah two people said two awful things a few days Mm. before the ceremony's composer, Kaigo Oyamada, I apologise if I'm saying that wrong, he quit his post over past comments he'd made about bullying classmates with disabilities. Oh. And then, one day before, the show's director, uh, Kentaro Kobayashi, was dismissed after historical footage emerged of him making jokes about the Holocaust. That's two turds right there. Yeah, amazingly, the ceremony still turned out to be here. As we said, the Telegraph was uh, enthusiastic, but the controversy hasn't ended there. This weekend, a Senegalese percussionist uh, who's lived in Japan since 1994 claimed he was cut from performing at the ceremony because organisers didn't want an African man in the show, fearing it would force them to represent a wide spectrum of ethnicities. We should say Tokyo 2020 didn't respond to the allegations after being approached for comment by the Independent, but I have just sent an email too, so let's see (laughs) if we've got any more clout than the Independent. 
Anyway, to celebrate this summer's games, I've put together a little Olympic-themed music quiz. Yes! First question. The 1743 opera Olympiade tells the story of Megacles. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I should just say to viewers that I had surgery on my eye less than a week ago. (laughs) And shock horror, we sometimes use scripted words, and I am finding it really hard to read some of the words and especially some of the names. Megacles? That sounds like a Pokemon <laughs> character. Is that what it says, Sam? It does say Megacles. <laughs> okay. Uh, Limpiare tells the story of Megacles, a heroic athlete who comes to Sision in Greece to participate in the Olympic Games, but gets entangled in a love triangle. Can you tell me the composer of the opera? Oh, well, let's hope he's not using the Olympic beds, which are, are non-sexy beds, right? You're not allowed to... Yeah, there's been videos of certainly not a love triangle bouncing on them. Yeah, and I do like the name Megacles. I wonder if he's a thousand times stronger than a Gigacles. Or <laughs> no, that's, that's really that's bad. bad. That's a really bad. One. Um, I don't know. It sounds Italian and Baroque, so maybe it's someone like Stradella or Cavalli. It's more obvious than that. It's Vivaldi. Oh no way! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's a clip. From the really lovely aria Mentre Dormi, sung by Lisida, who's the other bloke in the love triangle. Next question. When Baron Pierre de Corbedin had the idea of bringing back the games in 1894, he convened a meeting of sporting movers and shakers at the Sorbonne in Paris, Mm. where the first choral performance of the ancient Hymn to Apollo, newly discovered on stone tablets in Delphi, was performed. Which French composer arranged the hymn? Ooh, I like this. 1894 French composer. There's a few in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got sort of Sasson probably still walking around, isn't yeah. he? V doors in the house. Foray there. Uh, Dupre. Yeah, is he's it a, it. Is it a foray? Yeah, it's a foray. The chain smoking, mustachioed organist himself. Olympic facts. Kubertan's <laughs> Olympic Committee went on to commission Greek composer Spiridon Samaras. Great name. Yeah. To write a cantata for the opening ceremony of the first modern games in Athens two years later, which apparently inspired frenetic applause resounding from every part of the stadium. Unfortunately for Samras, the piece wasn't used again at the opening ceremony for over 50 years, long after his death, but he did repurpose it as the overture to his opera, Rhea, a tragic tale of a mythological Olympic Games, which premiered shortly before the 1908 Games in London. Good Olympic fact, Tim. That is good. Uh, Fast forwarding a few years, who wrote the Olympic hymn for the 1936 Berlin Games? Yeah, it must be old Straussy, isn't it? He's in that sort of am I a Nazi, am I not a Nazi period, mm-hmm. I can probably knock out a nice bit over lunch Correct. because I'm so talented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hitler had become Chancellor three years previous and demanded Ooh. Strauss write the piece. Although the composer was less than impressed, he wrote to the novelist Stefan Zweig, I kill the boredom of the Advent Hours by writing an Olympic hymn for the <laughs> proles. Ooh. I of all people who hate and despise sports. He did look like a blobfish. Mm. He's not a... He's not an athletic man. (laughs) 
next question. Strauss's hymn was ditched after the war by the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, and in 1954, Prince Pierre of Monaco announced a competition for a three to four minute hymn setting words by the ancient Greek poet Pindar with a first prize of a thousand US dollars. Who was on the judging panel? A clue. One was a cellist and four were composers. Oh, Tim, that is tough. It's a toughie. Uh, mid-century, I'm assuming Frenchman. Uh, I think there was only one French woman, actually. So there you go. It was um, a Swissman. A Swissman? Is Martin Swiss? Frank Martin. Yeah, that's one um, of them. Yeah, I'm just going to be pulling names out of, of my bum for the rest. I don't know. I, I would have picked Stravinsky mm. because he's great. And after that, I don't know. He is great. It was Pablo Casals, the cellist. Ah. Nadia Boulanger. Ah. Aaron Copeland, Frank Martin, as we've mentioned, and Lennox Berkeley, father of Michael Berkeley. Yeah, and a host good of composer Private Passions. Yeah. Well. Uh, they also apparently asked Shostakovich, but he didn't get back to them. Classic. <laughs> there we go. Classic. The I'm winner. Disappointed. I didn't get Boulanger. That's silly. Yeah, that is silly. The winner they selected was a Pole living in Paris called Michael Spisak. Apologies, Michael, if I got you in Well, he's long dead. How many times do you think Spisak's <laughs> hymn was performed? I guess once. I mean, most Olympic things seem to happen once and then yeah, just get but left I mean, as it a was, white elephant, don't they? It was commissioned to be played in perpetuity, but it was played just once at the 1956 Melbourne Olympics. But because the sensible Spisak had retained copyright and demanded performance fees, the oh. IOC ditched his hymn after a year and recalled the melody from Samaras's original 1896 cantata, which has been played at every opening and closing ceremony since. Next question. I'm going to play a wee clip. I need you to tell me, A, the composer, and B, which Olympics this became the official theme for. I know this one because I played it in Salisbury Youth Orchestra. It is mm. Shostakovich Festival Overture. Correct. But what Olympics? It's a Winter Olympics, maybe? No. I mean, if it's... Well, it could have been, but the one, okay. the main one I'm thinking of was the summer one. I don't know. When did they have them in Russia? 1980 Moscow. Oh. It was adopted I, yeah. as the official anthem. Next question. At the 1984 Los Angeles opening ceremony, mm. how many grand pianos joined forces <laughs> on stage for a performance of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue? Here's a clip to give you a sense. I hope that, uh, however many there were, they were more together than Paul McCartney with himself in the 2012 opening ceremony, where he was sort of four beats out within, uh, it was sort of yeah, toe-curling time. Horror show. It was actually 84 grand pianos on stage. Wow. Uh, presumably, you know, which US composer was hired to write a fanfare for that games, as well as the music for the 1994 Atlanta and 2002 Salt Lake City Winter Games. It's all John Williams, isn't it? Yeah. The main man. Uh, the pomp and bonkersness of that games ended up sparking the age of large-scale opening <laughs> ceremonies and subsequent 
Olympics saw performances from the likes of Jesse Norman, Placido Domingo, Jose Carreras, and of course, Montserrat Caballé and Freddie Mercury. Oh, yeah. But what happened to Luciano Pavarotti at the 2006 Winter Games in Turin? I bet whatever happened, he was just smiling and having a great time, probably in a linen shirt. Every image I ever see of him, he looks chuffed and is sort of in a Panama hat. Yeah, I think he was chuffed, but ill health meant that he had to mm. lip-sync Nessam Dorma at the closing ceremony. And actually, he died a little over a year later, so probably fair enough. Poor dude. To bring things back to the present, my final question is on the opening ceremony of the current Olympic Games. As each country's representatives entered the stadium, they were accompanied by orchestral renditions of themes from 14 legendary Japanese video games. How many of them can you name? Well, I did see that Nintendo weren't involved, and I think that's most of the games that I know, sort uh, of your Mario's and your, the people like that. But maybe Sonic the Hedgehog? I think yeah, he's, that was uh, one. Is it Sega? Uh, I'm, if it's not... Like Space Invaders, I fear I'm probably drawing a blank. I bet they're great. I bet the music's amazing. Oh, it is amazing. Uh, I can name a few of them. Uh, Dragon Quest, it's a big one. Final Fantasy. Yes. Uh, Chrono Trigger, Ace Combat, Fantasy Star Universe. They sound like fun. They do sound fun. I bet the music is good too. Yeah, it is really good. It's definitely worth watching. I wasn't able to find out the arranger of the medley, so if anybody listening knows, please do get in touch be appreciated but there you go i can't remember what you got i wasn't counting your scores it was all right medium performance i'd say bronze really i'll be really happy with a bronze from that yeah i'll give you a bronze purposeful purposelessness the meaningful meaninglessness meaninglessness i should say purposeful purposeful purposelessness meaninglessness i should say purposeful Purposeful means purposeful means purposeful means classical music pod, I should say. Tim, I thought for analysis today we could preempt our Scottish guest. Please tell me there won't be accents. Uh, genuinely, I'm still working through the complaints after that Line of Duty episode. Uh, we'll see, we'll see. Just in case anyone is inspired by our chat that's coming up with the charming head of music for Edinburgh International Festival, Andrew Moore, here's a segment of a piece written about a very fruitful trip to Scotland. You might know that 10-minute orchestral piece by one of its two famous titles, but it was originally called Die Einsam Insel, or The Lonely Island, when it was written in 1830 by one of the 19th centuries and one of his own family's great musical all-rounders, Felix Mendelssohn. It was revised two years later and published with The Hebrides Overture on the Parts and Fingal's Cave on the Score. Just to confuse. Just to create a bit of thoughtful ambiguity. Mm, but you like ambiguous, so. Do I? Well, I think this piece has some great grey areas. Perhaps we'll think about them later. Silly. But the piece was inspired by a real trip to a real cave, wasn't it? Yes. 
20-year-old Felix and his buddy, who sounds like a Marvel superhero, Carl Klingerman, visited England in 1829, then crossed the border up to Scotland on basically a romantic-era gap year. Didn't get as far as Perrault. Uh, no, they didn't. But they were inspired on a boat trip to the Scottish island of Staffa, known for its basalt hexagon columns and phenomenal acoustic... But they were well into a creative mood before they got to Fingal's cave. Oh, really? How so? They'd visited the ruined Holyrood Palace's chapel, where Lucky Felix said he found the beginning of his Scottish symphony. Unfortunate thing to find in a gift shop, isn't it? And when they were waiting for the boat to Staffer from Oban, Mendelssohn did a really rather good sketch of Donali Castle and the surrounding islands. I've seen his other paintings. He's really, genuinely a very good artist, isn't he? Yeah, multi-talented Mendel. Why were they in Scotland especially? Well, as the Scottish Tourism Board might say, why not Scott? Have they taken you up on that slogan at all? Uh, no, no, no. But in all seriousness, there's a lot to suggest Europe was enamoured with Scotland at this time. Sir Walter Scott, he was actually Scottish, it's not the name, was one of Europe's most popular writers, with Rob Roy and Ivanhoe capturing the imagination of young continental fellas like Felix and Carl. Speaking of whom, how did they fare on their boat trip to Staffa? Well, Felix's entire diary entry for the day is... Horrible seasickness, Staffa. Whereas Carl writes something beautiful and poetic about obsolete columns reminding him of an organ. But at least Felix sent his sister Fanny Mendelssohn, one of music's great underserved talents, a postcard. Yes, before they left for Staffa... Felix wrote Fanny a postcard and scrawled a little musical motif on it. That will subsequently become a ten-minute tone poem. Ah, yes. Now tell us what a tone poem is. In verse. If you've got an I am spare. Well, it's a little more John Cooper Clark than Robbie Burns, but, yeah, here goes. I'll find something suitable to underscore you. I like this type of pieces orchestral. Paintings and poems, landscapes and novels inspire perspiration from composers. A list. Franz, of course. Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Strauss and Sibelius. Did this creative fire start with a piece called Prometheus? Free from form this blaze burns, the notes unconstrained by habits learned. Sonata and Rondo are thrown out the window as motifs dictate the direction they must flow. Some stick to a narrative, but some set a scene. Listen to them to hear what I mean. Don Juan, Mavlast, Polya's daughter, Finlandia, Isle of the Dead, Alzo Sprach Zaratustra, Prelude à la Pré-Midi Don Fone, and even a night on Bold Mountain. They precede no play, ballet, show, nor opera, and even though Strauss's Symphony Domestica might suggest to you there's a four-movement with a scherzo, you, listener, you should know by now each one of these acts of artistic translation stands alone in unique programmatic isolation. <laughs> it's like the bard of Salford was in the room. I genuinely, I think if you stumbled across that <laughs> on Radio 4, <laughs> if you just turned on your radio and it was Radio 4 and you heard someone doing that, you would be like, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Thanks, I can man. believe that. I'm really pleased. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, can I 
steer our ship. See what I did there? Yeah. Back towards grey areas. What do you think we can enjoy about said grey areas in this piece? Much like the faces of many Scottish people I know, the piece is littered with features that take a little while to distinguish. <laughs> Careful, there will be more letters. One of these areas is tonality. The key that the harmony and melody suggest a piece is in... Listen to these opening chords. It feels like an unpredictable journey to me. There's an element of, ooh, I wasn't expecting that after each step. And it sets up the main tonal opposition in the piece between B minor and D major. The first two chords in that opening sequence are two of the main tonal centres for the whole piece. Relative major and minor. Yes, two keys that are very closely linked, basically the same scale, just started in different places with only one note different. How close that line between light and dark is. It's a grey area for sure. And I've got another, although it's not so much a grey area as a feature that is shifting so quickly that you can't make much sense of it. Like your Cooper Clark impression. Thank you. The string texture is changing all the time in this piece. Who plays with whom uh, is hard to pin down. Can you expand? In an orchestra, there are five string teams. Violin one, violin two, violas, cello and double bass. And when they are all playing something very similar, we might call that texture A-A-A-A-A. Like a very anonymous alcoholic automotive recovery service. Or if the two violins and viola are playing a melody together, while the cello and bass give a bass line, then we could say it's A-A-A-B-B. Like somebody negotiating with a hive. Hey, hey, hey! B-B! <laughs> a really common texture is A-A-B-C-C. It sounds great, but also leads to viola jokes, as they often play a simple binding part in the middle of tricky stuff happening above and below them. Mm, can we have viola joke uh, 55, please? Alright. Why do so many people take an instant dislike to the viola? I don't know. Why do so many people take an instant dislike to the viola? It saves time. Oh, I see. <laughs> Meta. <laughs> and Mendelssohn is changing this texture a lot? Yes. Barely a phrase goes by without him shifting from one to another. And what's really cool, and a bit more of a rarity at this time, is he shifts in the middle of melodic statements, creating this swirling goop of string ambiguity for the ear to try and follow. If you want to see what that looks like in the score, in the description below you'll find a link to one of those helpful YouTube videos that puts the score and soundtrack together. A final great area is tempo. The speed of the music. And it's why this is a great piece to see live if you get a chance. The music is in a constant state of ebb and flow. One thing setting up another. Exactly. It creates questions for ensembles and conductors. Are you going to be rhythmic or metronomic? Maintain quality of feel or quantity of beats per minute? If a section has exactly the same number of beats per minute as the last, will it still feel like it has the same tempo, and do we want it to? Yeah, an easy one to try at home is, will a phrase of minims have the same sense of flow as a line of quavers if they're played exactly the same metronome mark? Maybe, but maybe not. A conductor might try and adjust the quantity of beats per minute to get the same sense of feeling and quality in those two sections. And there are tons of great transitions where choices must be made in the Hebrides. Here's one. Try tapping the beat or clapping along to feel how much that pulse moves around.
I've always thought the LPO's departing conductor, Vlad Yurovsky, was the current king of this skill of maintaining flow. And remember Paul Bruff telling me it was a tactic popularised by possible Nazi Wilhelm Furtwängler. But even if you make a decision as a conductor whether to change or not, you've got to try and lead the orchestra through it. That's why it's fun to see live. There's a lot of musical rigging to be pulled around. Waves of texture, tempo and tonality all swelling beneath us. Definitely worth embracing any great areas this summer if you get the chance, especially if it means enjoying and supporting live music. Composer fact file, Fanny Mendelssohn. Born Hamburg, 1805. Her family included the philosopher Moses Mendelssohn, her grandfather, and her brother, the composer, Felix Mendelssohn. Fanny's mother, Leah, had studied the piano with students of Bach and declared her newborn child had Bach's fugal fingers. A child prodigy with perfect pitch, she performed the 24 preludes from Well-Tempered Clavier from memory when she was 14. Six of Fanny's early songs were published under her brother's name in his first two song collections, Opus 8 and 9. When Fanny's brother Felix visited Buckingham Palace in 1842, he accompanied the Queen, who chose to sing the song Italienne, written by Fanny, but published under Felix's name. After Felix shared the piece's true author, the Queen chose another, this one by Felix. She married the Prussian painter Wilhelm Hensel, who made her unlimited practice of music a precondition of their marriage. She wrote the music for her wedding the night before the ceremony, as Felix hadn't gotten round to it. They had a son named Sebastian Ludwig Felix Hensel, after Fanny's three favourite composers. She finally published work under her own name in 1846, aged 41. On May the 14th, 1847, at the age of 41, she died of a stroke mid-rehearsal. So the opening concert of the festival this year is um, kind of takes its starting point from um, a very, in a very weird sense, a book by Paul Morley. Oh yeah, um, great. The the um, the book with the yellow cover, which is sat behind me somewhere over there, and <laughs> a sound mind. Um, and I was reading this over Christmas, and you know the the opening chapter about the last piece of music you ever you might would ever hear, you know, when he's on an aeroplane and he's listening to Brooklyn and he's thinking, if the aeroplane crashes, this would be the last piece of music I'd ever hear. And I was sitting over the Christmas holidays thinking, again, turning it around, what what, what would be the first piece of music I'd want to hear live after all of this? Mm. Um, and it got me thinking, maybe not so much about what the actual piece of music is, but about the idea of just what that concert should be. It should be joyful it should be uplifting it should be fun um and we wanted to have new music involved in it we wanted it to, to reflect the setting of this um big outdoor gazebo pavilion in a really beautiful garden in edinburgh 
So it took us down, it took it took us to thinking about the Respighi pieces. The yeah. new music, of course, is represented by Anna Klein. The Respighi, um, we, we, we thought about some of the some of the wonderful um, evocations of, of, of um, Italian landscape, but in the end we've ended up with the, the Botticelli pictures. Um, and then Pulcinella is just such a, a fun piece, joyful and fun. So that was kind of where the idea for that one came from, in a very in a, a very strange sort of connection of, of of things. Yeah, but I really I really like. I'm glad that you've ended up with that Respighi because I think it now you've got a concert basically of artists being inspired by going to see other art, or also because I think that Anna Klein's got some folk song connections as well, the, hasn't it? The Anna Klein piece is called Pivot, um, and it's it's named after a bar um, in the centre <laughs> of Edinburgh that's now called the Royal Oak. But when it was called Pivot, um, it was a it was and still is a sort of hub for for folk musicians. And hmm. um, so yeah, she's used a couple of um, folk tunes that she heard in that bar as part of as part of the piece. So it, yes, it is it is inspired by different artists. We've been thinking of lots of things in, in the melting pot, and then this idea sort of emerged of what it of what it was, and that's often the way some of the some of the best ideas come come about. I think you know mm. where you set you set out without a fixed idea of what you want, and it it naturally develops. Yeah, what you want an audience to end up feeling is the sort of start point, and you you build up to that. Um, yeah. I wonder if we could just dig a little bit deeper past. We as audience members and people floating around classical music often hear that it, COVID has had a huge effect or a massive impact on the arts. And I just wondered if you could share with us some of the ways that it's actually affected your planning and the putting together process, uh, sort of live that experience for us a bit. Well, how, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't do it minute by minute, I'm afraid. But, uh... <laughs> no. Um, it's funny, you spend on average three to four years putting a festival together. Mm, wow. Not sure I'd realised it was that long. <laughs> you know, because you're probably looking at booking certain singers for certain projects mm. three or four years hence. So, you know, probably for the 2020 festival, we spent three years putting it together and we spent about three days taking it to bits again. Oh. Um, and then 2020 kind of evolved into what it was. 2021... Um, you know, at this time last year, we had we had a pretty developed 2021 festival. Um, we had the evening programme fully sketched out. We had the, chamber, the morning chamber music programme pretty much done. As the autumn went on, we, we went through different scenarios and different bits of planning, thinking, are we going to be back indoors? Are we not? What, what are the numbers going to be? What social distancing going to be? And to be honest, at times during the autumn, I thought we were being overly pessimistic. I, you know, I thought right. we're going to we're going to be back inside. I'm not sh- quite sure why we're going down this route, but Fergus had a very a festival director had a very clear vision. This was the route that we were that we were taking, and of course, it's turned out to be right. A lot of the last eighteen months for me has been about rescheduling and then rescheduling again or rolling forward. And so, quite a lot of the program from 2020 was originally rolled to 2021. Quite a lot of the program that we had on the sheet for 2021 has been rolled to 2022 and then we started you know the conversations about the size of stages and uh, and our venues and what does a stage that's 20 meters by 15 meters for performers look like how many people can we get on the stage mm. um 
and that took us to, to sort of a, a number of musicians so yeah. we're looking at about 50 musicians and then we kind of started to think well last year we did the arrangements thing you know we did yeah. the Klaus Simon arrangement of Mahler 7 we did other things we didn't want to do arrangements this year we wanted to actually program music that was properly written for the number of people on the stage or the scale of, of musicians um, and that's taken us into some territory that we would maybe ordinarily not necessarily avoid but it wouldn't be a programming priority because hmm. there, there, is a, an, there is an element of music that falls between the scale of our morning venue and our evening venue in a normal indoor year and um, that sort of 800 to 1500 audience kind of thing or between 20 and 45 musicians is right it's right in that middle ground between the Queen's yeah. Hall and the, and the Usher Hall and so it's been really interesting sort of being funneled towards that and thinking about that scale of scale of thing and you're exploring some more venues as a result is that right so we we're in three temporary um gazebos these are large indoor outdoor structures they count they, they count as outdoors to meet um covid protocols and and um, and, and um and government regulations but they are fully they, they have a fully covered roof um but it's taking us into areas of the city, parts of the city where we haven't necessarily been before. Mm. Our main orchestral venue is in the north of the city on some playing fields, of, in some school playing fields. Ironically, that's the school where we normally use the assembly hall for larger scale rehearsals. <laughs> um, but we've not done performances there. We're going to the old college quad with a smaller scale venue to replicate our chamber music. And we're going out to an area in the west of the city for um, our contemporary non-classical music. It's three completely new, untried, untested venues. It's a really exciting project to be working on. It's the, one of the biggest scale things that we in our technical department have worked on because it's, it's this, the infrastructure is coming from all over the place. The actual gazebos are coming from Portugal. <laughs> wow. We've got crew coming from you know, various parts of, of the UK and kind of pulling the whole thing together has been in a huge challenge and it's still a huge jigsaw puzzle that we're still turning over the pieces on and trying to work out where that you know I think we've probably got the edges done and it's now all the pieces in the middle oh I like a good analogy that's great uh, <laughs> and uh, it's just lovely to hear that there are so many creative solutions being found especially ones that get you out and you know, knitting together the community again uh, are there any of these things that you are really keen to hold on to in the future in, you know, Festival 22, 23, that you think, oh, that might have been a bit awkward to work out the first time, but now we've got it. Let's let's really try and keep that. I think there's, we're going into this with, with, with the absolutely fervent hope that this is a one-year solution <laughs> and that next year we'll, we'll be back indoors. But we, we, we have to be we have to be open-minded about all of, all, about the about the infrastructure i mean you know the, the locations maybe the infrastructure yes some of the technical solutions definitely um because you know we're all going to learn a lot from this and it, it it if if something really works then we'd like to you know it might be something that that, that, we, that we look at replicating i think the the feeling of the festival being beyond the city center is really important we're going to learn a tremendous amount from it the sound and the way that we can create the best 
acoustic atmosphere with or with an orchestra in a temporary venue because it was really important to us when we started the conversations about this that we weren't going to stick two huge arrays of speakers at the front and therefore mm -hmm. that your experience in in rows one to five was having your head blown off <laughs> and that at the back you were straining to hear how can we create an acoustic experience that's as close to the usher hall as possible, bearing in mind all of the things like rain and wind that we don't have control over. Those are some serious challenges. Uh, I expect the audiences will just enjoy being part of something new, right? Sort of experiment. You don't know exactly what is going to happen when you arrive, and that's kind of the way it should be if you're going to a concert, right? It shouldn't just be a one more off the production line experience. It's going to take us back maybe even hundreds of years in the concert experience because you know the you know the very sanitized kind of late 20th early 21st century experience of perfect um venues i think it's it's this is, yeah this is going to take us back to, to, to a different time and a different concert going experience and i think that's going to be quite exciting and i also think what might well come out of all of this um in the longer term is an appreciation that Shorter concerts are sometimes actually better than longer concerts. For the sake of building a, a navigable website and brochure for your audiences to get through, you you kind of have to compartmentalise a little bit, right, as a, as a festival. But I was wondering, if, are there any acts or uh, events that really defied that and were you were wrestling with somebody else over oh do we put it in this category that category were you wrestling over alan cummings because he sings i mean is it i think it's you're right it's things like alan's show it's barry kosky's lonely house are they classical music they've got elements of classical music are they contemporary music they've got elements of that are they theater well, they've got elements of that in so much as we can technically do it. Yeah. Also, I think some of the some of what in the brochure has been compartmentalized as traditional music also kind of has quite strong elements of, of the classical to it. So things like the um Mr. McFall's Chamber with Jenna Reed and Harris Playfair, that's that's got, you know, that's four members of the Scottish Chamber Orchestra yeah. um in Mr. McFall's Chamber. So so those kind of things span span the, the genres and equally things like um a grand night for singing the rogers and hammerstein piece which if we were doing this in a normal year we'd probably be doing in a theater um, and yeah. you know it's a review piece but we'd probably be doing it in the king's in the king's theater so i think mm -hmm. you know things like that sort of across the across the genres there have been various things and also things like like Sona Jabarti or Balaki Sissoko and Vincent Segal. I mean, Balaki and Vincent is a really good example of Vincent, you know, serious classical cellist who hmm. collaborates with, with, with classical musicians from other non-Western nations. And um, Balaki Sissoko, the great fora player, is, is an example of that. It's, it's in the traditional music programme, but it's not traditional music. It's not, sorry, it's not just traditional music, it's not just world music, and it's not just classical music. It's interesting, as as these more experimental evenings come into um, playing with the venues and audiences not necessarily know where they're going, and also as festivals become more diverse uh, in terms of what they offer, who they employ, all those kind of things, maybe we're going to need some new categories or uh, different ways of getting around websites. 
I, I, it would be great. I, you know, I'd, I'd love one year to, to try not categorizing anything yeah. and just putting it in a in a in chronological order or mm. in no order at all and seeing what happens. I mean, you know, th there are some people we have to, you know, as a festival that's very revenue dependent, we do have to give some bookers the route to being able to open yeah. the brochure and go tick, 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 tick. But then equally, you you know, you kind of see in the front pages of our brochure, um, and you know, I, I, I'm afraid I still think quite paper-based when it comes yeah. to how, how a festival's laid out. And um, the front sort of 12, 15 sort of hero pages of the brochure is the point where you can give the journey through the different art forms or, or the things people might not ordinarily think about. And that's that's kind of, a, that's important. I'd love to do a brochure one year that was just like that, mm. um, or that didn't have, you know, some of those, um, some of the German festivals where you, you get a brochure that's not too far removed from the phone book, no, no images, all in the same font, all in the same size, virtually no description of what things are, and yeah. you just put it out there. Um, I'd be fascinated to, to see, see that as well. I mean, it, it would be suicide. But, um, <laughs> yes, playing with someone else's money, it'd be great. Uh, <laughs> hey, well, who knows what's going to happen in the future. Uh, but before we... I've got a little game for us to play in a second. Uh, but before we do that, I just wondered if you could give us a word on the role of Friend of the Pod, Nicola Benedetti, and what she's playing in the festival. Yeah, well, you know, Nicky's been uh, a regular at the festival for many years. And the one of the conversations that we I always have with her is about doing something in the festival that's different to what she does with the Scottish orchestras in the winter season. And that's a general, that's a general programming principle with the Scottish groups anyway. It's how can we enable something over and above or different to what they would do during the winter. So with Nikki, that's ended over the last 10 years to be appearances with guest orchestras or the festival helping foster relationships or uh, with conductors that she doesn't know so Ivan Fisher for example with the Budapest Festival a couple of years ago um, but we've always kind of Nikki and I've always you know sat and had a chat say it'd be really nice to do something really quite different or really quite in-depth or um, to show how multifaceted she is because you know usually it's coming in playing one concerto or one recital or whatever it is mm. and so we've been chatting about, you know, wanting to show off the different sides of her. And this year seemed like a really good time because of a number of projects, projects that she had in development. And because of us looking at a slightly more UK based um, artist pool this year. So she's doing three concerts, which um, as an artist in residence, the first with her Baroque Orchestra. And this was something which I think over the last five years she's been we've seen an evolution from her in interest in Baroque music, you know, from the album with Christian Kernian sort of, what, almost 10 years ago, yeah. um, you know, of playing Baroque concertos, but on a modern violin with performance practice and informing it to play, beginning to play with a Baroque bow to actually playing the Baroque violin. Um, and that's really exciting to show, you know, as a, as a 21st century, soloist just that breadth of being able to really um 
play across styles mm. and across different instruments really, really well. You know, it's something that um, certain people in on keyboards have been doing for a long time. If you think of Robert Levin or Ronald Brautigam, mm. um, but string, it's not been so common in string playing to be really, really world-class across historical and modern string instruments. The story of the violin project, like we wanted something that was, when I say family friendly, it's not something people are going to bring little children to, but something that was more accessible uh, and that Nikki would present and would, would tie in with the advocacy, advocacy that she's been doing about, about the violin and storytelling around the violin. So that was kind of important to show her as a presenter and advocate, not just as somebody who stands and plays. <laughs> And then she was, then she said to me, you know, I just want to do something really different. I would make, you know, maybe something dramatic, maybe something theatrical. And we kind of thought, well, what about the Soldier's Tale? You know, Stravinsky yeah. anniversary. It's a really great piece. Mm. It's a festival piece when you do it with three actors, because yeah. you know, so many people roll soldier, devil, and narrator together with one person. We're, we're not going to. Oh, um, and again, it was a chance for her to to work with a group of friends from different UK or different orchestras, different groups. So it's just, it's, it, yeah, it all kind of came out of this wanting to show the breadth of presenting, directing, historical performance, and to really kind of be able to show all of that in a relatively short time frame, rather than it being spread out over several months and maybe you lose the impact of it. Of it. This, this is really kind of, I think puts Nikki uh, front and center as somebody who's who's got this amazingly um, wide, diverse skill set, and and kind of shows her as one of the really, really most important British classical musicians. Yeah, do you have to be old to be a national treasure? I mean, I don't know. Do you just sort of give a few more years before we can throw that tag on? But uh, yeah, again, just an, an individual artist who kind of defies those categories again. Like it's just modern music making is so fluid, isn't it? And uh, she sort of sums that up. Classical chat. Classical chat. Classical chat. Classical chat. Drop it. It isn't worth it. And actually, you're not very good at it. Hey, a, a quick game. So I'm hoping that with this, you'll be able to mention some more of the raft of great events that we've not managed to mention yet. Uh, I'm calling it Cookie Monster. And the premise is essentially that I will play the role of a sort of Netflix, Spotify-style algorithm and say, I've noticed, for instance, that you enjoyed Series 2 of The Good Wife, Boris from GoldenEye, The Threepenny Opera, and Steelhead character actors. I think you'll enjoy. And then you'd suggest whatever you know springs to mind. I had uh, Alan coming down for, for that one. But uh, are you clear with me on roughly how it will work? I mean, there's no right answer. So if <laughs> if you feel inspired to suggest two or three things, then then go for it. Yeah, and I've just I've just pulled out my brochure just so I don't forget anything. <laughs> Your cheat sheet, excellent. I notice you enjoyed the last episode of the Classical Music Pod, us, yeah, which featured Purcell's opera Dido and Aeneas, also Penguins, but that probably won't help you. I suggest you try Ariadne of Daxos. Oh, lovely. I also wondered whether Dido's Ghost might be a good one. Yeah. For folks as a sort of a sequel, bit of Goldershits. That's on the 20th to the 22nd, isn't it? 
Yes, that's a new commission from um, Errol and Wallen and three mm. performances the 20th, 21st and 22nd of August. And that's currently in performance in Buxton. Oh, lovely. Well, may, may, I, we probably won't be able to turn it around in time for people in Buxton. But hey, maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll listen to this and go, yes, I enjoyed that. Um, and Ariadne of Noxos is a little bit later, the 25th to the 29th. Uh, I see that you've been enjoying musicals which illustrate important historical events through the medium of song, uh, as well as the demise of Robert Mugabe and choirs in spectacular costumes. I wonder if you might enjoy... Uh, You might enjoy um, Shona the Musical Choir on Monday the 16th of August at Edinburgh Park. Hey, really, that looks like such fun. I watched the little uh, video trailer for that and it looks looks like a phenomenal night out. Yeah, it's... it's, um... It's it's such an it's such an ambitious, wonderful project. Um, we, we we really kind of thought that that was another genre crossing thing mm. that we thought where does this where does this sit? And actually, it's ended up where it is from a really from quite a technical reason, and it needs quite a lot of it needs quite a lot of technical support from sound and lighting, which mm. that venue has, and that the uh, neither of the other venues are quite as well equipped as that. So. That's an example of something where the venue has dictated where it where it sits rather than anything else. Brill, here's a, here's a third one. I notice you enjoyed being successful in the 90s, like a country house, but also animated primates. You famously don't like Noel Gallagher, and now you do like John Clare poetry. Oh, it's a puzzler. It's a little bit of a puzzler. Might not have crossed your desk, this one. I think that might have been on somebody else's desk. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, you can go and see Damon Albarn on the 24th of August and his uh, his new stuff, The Nearer the Fountain and More Pure the Stream Flows. That was that somebody else's somebody else's uh, job, that one? Yeah, well, we, yes, that's probably... That, that, you should be talking to, talking to my colleague, uh, Bryn, who, who's our contemporary music consultant on that one. Oh, anyone called Bryn is a friend of me. Mm-hmm. Uh <laughs> Final one, final one. The algorithm has noted that you enjoy bass baritone singing, whether it be in jazz or Strauss, and that you wouldn't mind dropping in on some pedagogical experiences as well, if they're about. In that case, you should um, you should have two things, particularly on 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 your radar. Um, the first is uh, Thomas Quackoff's Masterclasses with Young Young Singers on the twenty eighth of August in the Old College Quad. But also, you should think about going to hear Thomas Quastoff with his jazz quartet on the 24th of August in the Edinburgh Academy Junior School series. Um, Tommy, uh, one of the great bass baritones, mm. retired from classical singing, but here as artist in residence as well across three different projects um, with his jazz quartet, um, giving masterclasses to young singers, but also as the major domo, the spoken role in Ariadne of Naxos. I mean, that's just a great week for him, isn't it? Or like, I, you could just follow him around for the week and you'd have a wonderful festival experience. What you know, brilliant. He, he came in 2016. Um, we closed the festival that year with Guru Leader. It was Donald Ronicles' final concert as chief conductor of the BBC Scottish. And he said to me when we'd been passing the Sprecher, you know, I'd, I'd really like to ask um, Tommy Klasthoff, you know, mm. um, but he came to the festival with me in 1995. And I, 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 so I asked him, I got an answer back within minutes. So yes, I'd love to do this. 
<laughs> and he came and he was he was really delightful. And what particularly struck me was how generous he was with everybody around him, with people in the choir who spoke to him, with the other soloists. And you know, in Guruli, the Strecker has that tiny little bit at the end. Mm-hmm. And we did, I did to Tommy, you know, um, you don't need to sit on stage for the whole for the whole performance, but we we can get you on stage just before your bit. I said, no, 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 I, I want to sit there. Um, and contact at seven o'clock, at seven thirty, seven o'clock, he appears and he just goes and he just went and sat on stage and he sat and followed through the score the whole piece. Um, yeah. Just it, it, you know, really enjoying it, loving being there and and doing it. And I thought that was really touching that somebody who had stopped classical singing themselves was still so invested and so interested in in it. Um, and he was also sort of great, great fun at the after party. <laughs> Stories. He's a, he's, a, he's a great sort of storyteller. He's a great. He's really funny. Um, and I think yeah, it's it's going to be a great week to have him, have him, have him here. Yeah, oh, it's just inspiring to see like those world class musicians in sort of enjoying music. Um, one final question for you, Andrew. Thanks for your time today. Uh, if there's one event, one thing doesn't have to be from the classical music section that you think we haven't mentioned that might just go under people's radar a little hidden gem that's out there what would you recommend oh that's a good question i mean there, there, there are there are lots of things um i think they're all good you can't miss right there's no uh, there's no bad night out <laughs> no no there's nothing i i would say actually the um we, we've, we've touched on it in places but the the program of traditional music hmm. um is really exciting for, for me this year because what because we've we've wanted to approach traditional music in the same way as classical music and focus on virtuosity and music making um, rather than bells and whistles and fancy technical stuff. So we've got some of the really best virtuoso Scottish um, Scottish traditional groups and soloists, and I think that's going to be really exciting um, and is connected into classical music in a way that people I hope will well actually will highlight people how how interconnected you know these these traditions are so I think that's because of having to be sort of because this isn't a normal year and because we're having to be sort of kind of careful re- really careful and really think about what we go to and how we interact with people um, I think there's there's so much on this that in a normal year I'd be trying to go and see three or four things in a day mm. we're not even sure that uh, whether I'll be able to go and see anything like I might oh. be relying on Radio 3. Oh well I really hope you get to enjoy your own festival that you've played, played such a big part in putting together and I'm sure lots of other people will as well. Thanks so much Andrew I really appreciate it. Before we leave, we've got a couple of thank yous and a multi-plug. I'm very excited for the multi-plug, a rarity on the pod. But first, we must thank Andrew very much for his time and good company and Martina for helping set that up. On to the multi-plug. Very quickly, I'm sure lots of people listening will be going to the proms this season. Just a heads up and say, if you can, make sure you buy a programme because I have had a very small part in producing them and I'm you know, very proud of them. I think they're, I think they're going to be really good. really good, yeah. Yeah, nice. Uh, my multi-plug is for a little opera called 
Helena. Mm. But it's happening at the Tete-a-Tete Festival and it will then be online for 28 days after that. The date is on the 6th of August and it's at the Cockpit Theatre. After that, it's online, I think, through the Tete-a-Tete website. It's going to be really cool with this sort of AI element that our composer Marco Galvani is tucking into it's all about robots and space and the future so if you are like us in the venn diagram of liking classical music and old sci-fi then this could be right up your street i'll be doing some waving and some nice people will be doing some good singing uh could be a treat it's gonna be a real treat i can't wait for it there you go multi-plug over and out every day i step out of the path of a man named j.s bach He's always bumping us over, you see. I didn't like it, not one bit. Made me feel like a piece of dirt. Till a thought occurred to me. Today you would ask Bach to step aside? Yes! Please move, Mr. Bach. You're in my way. No. Please? No. I always move for you. I wouldn't say that, but go on. Oh, you're being a big meanie. Yeah, I have no opinion. That really hurts my feelings. I mean, I don't, are you telling me or are you asking? I have a little cry now. I can't really address that. It's an absurd notion. <laughs> no.